All right, sir. We are recording. I do appreciate you joining me here for uh, the first episode of Between the Levees, a new podcast with a focus on the marine industry. First of all, please tell uh, all the listeners who you are. Well, I'm Frank Morton. Um, I'm uh, semi-retired and out of the barge and towing industry. Well, let's uh, let's start from the very beginning. I assume at some point you were born to a two parents. <laughs> Take us back to that point. Yeah, all right. Well, I'm, uh, I'm originally from the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and um, I grew up over here. Uh, and when I was uh, 14, I went to the seminary at a Benedictine monastery and stayed there for high school and beginning of college. And then I uh, <clears throat> decided I discerned that uh, vocation to the priesthood was not... Uh, in my best interest or God's best interest. Sure. <laughs> so I know I went to uh, the University of Southern Mississippi and uh, met my wife there. And um, I had uh, decked on charter boats and on tow boats uh, when I wasn't going to college to make a little money and got out of college. And I was um, working in uh, selling lubricants and uh, I didn't really care for the work and wasn't happy with it. My wife asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I, you know, I really always enjoyed the barge and towing industry. So I had a friend that worked in it. His name was Ed, Ed uh, Larndine. He worked for Radcliffe Materials in those days. He recently retired from Cooper T. Smith. Um, Ed told me to uh, put a job wanted ad in the Waterways Journal and run it for three weeks and see what happened. And that's what I did. So uh, I wound up getting uh, three job offers and uh, took the job in Minneapolis, St. Paul, because it was the farthest away from the Mississippi Gulf Coast. We figured <laughs> if we were going to get away, we'd get away, which is really good. I mean, I was, I went up there and I got there uh, in the spring of 1972. And then the uh, summer of 1972 was when Cargill did the first Russian grain deal and things went nuts up up there i worked a lot uh you know seven days a week and on call at night and, but we were up there by ourselves it was the best thing that ever happened to our marriage we just had one another to cling to and uh it built uh really strengthened our relationship and not having family in the way not that family ever means to get in the way but just sure. you get plugged into things sometimes and right. that was not a distraction for us so it, it, it worked out very well and um, I liked it, and I done a lot of work with the uh, American Commercial Barge Line. I'd gone into, at the end of the navigation season, I went into business with uh, two other guys, and we bought a towboat, and we had an agreement to uh, work the boat uh, at Red Wing, Minnesota with Central Soria, and the other two guys, uh, didn't want to do that. They wanted to leave the boat on the Illinois River. And I told Central Sawyer we would do this. And so I told them they needed to buy me out because I wasn't going to be in business with two guys who made an agreement and then walked away from it. Sure. And, uh, so that's what happened. And uh, American allow, Pardon? allow me to pause you right there. Okay. We're, I'd like to cover all of that in this conversation. Um, can you tell me 
what, what did your parents do for a living? Oh, my father was a was a letter carrier. Okay. Post, and my mother was a a home a housewife. She uh, they had eleven, they had eight kids. My mother was blind in an accident in nineteen forty nine, and she only saw three of her eight, four of her eight children. I'm the third oldest, the second boy. And um, my mother uh, thought that raising her children, she came from a family of nine, and uh, she thought that, that was her greatest vocation, and that's what she spent her time at. And my father was very active in the community and in sports. He uh, coached, uh, you know, football when we were little, and he uh, umpired in baseball and was very active with the Gulf Port Recreational Department and was a hunter and a fisherman. And he taught all us kids how to hunt and fish and all of that. Um, I think that um, I think that me leaving home at the age of 14, I had just turned 14 a couple of weeks before I left. And I think it was harder on my parents than it was on me. Um, it was a new adventure as far as I was concerned. And uh, the- I, I apologize, where, where was it that you went at 14? I went to St. Joseph's Seminary in, in St. Benedict, Louisiana, which is just outside of Covington. There's a Benedict okay. Monastery called St. Joseph Abbey. I've, I think I've, I've actually performed there in college in the choir. Oh, okay. <laughs> Did yes, you sir. go to school there? Southeastern. Oh, you went to Southeastern. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they have they have a they have a good relationship or had a good. I still think they do. They have some of their choir directors have come from Southeastern, um, and anyway, it's it's it was a working farm when I was there. We had a, a bunch of dairy cows and uh, orchards and all kinds of apiaries and chickens and uh, tapery where they kept hogs and pigs and all of that. So uh, I always told my uh, my family I ate so much better at, in the seminary than I did at home because we were trying to cut corners all the time. We used to use, uh, my mother would take uh, powdered milk and then cut it with regular milk so it was more palatable, but <clears throat> we would just get, uh, come into to, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and there'd be this huge pitcher, probably a gallon and a half of just fresh milk sitting on the tables. And they had a bakery, baked their own bread and all that. I said, you know, I uh, I put on a lot of weight, same thing. <laughs> did, that, uh, did that gallon and a half of milk serve all eight children? <laughs> no, no. I, that was at the seminary. At, at oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, we didn't. Uh, it was it was probably, well, there's a, there's a 17 year spread between the oldest and the youngest. Okay. So, um, you know, by the time the youngest was up to where they were drinking milk out of a glass, my oldest sister was already in college. And of course I was gone. And uh, when I left, I left home, there were only seven. Uh, and then that spring, my, uh, when I was home for spring vacation, 
my uh, youngest sister was born. Are you also so, close? Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons Jenny and I now live on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, we moved back over here because my four sisters live here. Okay. And got a lot of my nieces and nephews. And I have two brothers that live in Baton Rouge and one that lives in Laplace. I know one of but them. They're over a bit. Pardon? I said, I know one of them. Oh, yeah. You know what happened? One of the applause, yeah. Sure. All right. So he went to the seminary too. Did he? He followed years after me. I think this, he entered, I believe, in the second year of college and stayed two years. Okay. And then he went what, what was that experience for a 14 year old moving to a working farm? Well, we were, we were in class a lot. We went to school six days a week. Um, and the uh, the attitude of, of the of the Benedictine uh, approach to life is that by uh, by participating in productive work, you participated in the creative work of God. So the the, the Benedictine motto is peace, with Saint Benedict raising his hand like this. And the uh, motto is work and pray, um, or at labora. You hold on, I'm going to show you a, a poster from their centennial year that shows the uh, ora at labora. Uh, can you see that? I can, yes, sir. All right, work, pray, and work. Now, ora and labora are verbs, and they are the imperative form of the verb. They're not to work and to pray, they are a command, work and pray, or pray and work. So the, uh, so the, the, the communal prayer that they do together, the divine office, vespers and lauds and matins and all that stuff, and uh, the community mass when they come together, they call that the work of God. And then the rest of the time, they're doing the work with the monastery. Okay. The community to, to better the community. So we were honored. We were privileged. Uh, one afternoon a week to work for the betterment of the community. So we would go and do manual labor. We would dig ditches. We would. I mean, it wasn't really hard work or anything like that. But it was to get you an appreciation. And uh, so one of the things that some people don't understand is that when you would. Uh, when you would get punished, you were not allowed to do productive work because productive work, you participate in the, the creative activity of God and for disobedience, um, you're, you're not to be honored. You're to be, uh, to learn a lesson, not to waste your time and not to waste the time of everyone else that God gives all of us a limited amount of time. So we have some things that we would do is we would be told you have an hour that you have to go to this classroom and write. And there would be a monk uh, there and they would say, take out this particular book and starting at the end of it, write it backwards. And you'd write for an hour. And then you'd bring all the papers up to them. They'd look at them, they'd tear them up, throw them in the garbage can <laughs> to show you how. Anyway. The other thing was the, the thing that a lot of people get a big kick out of is we had a flatbed trailer and 
they had a big old pile of dirt. And okay. the dirt was at one end of the uh, pasture. And we would go out and shovel the dirt and put it on the flatbed truck, drive over to the other end of the, of the pasture and shovel it off and make a pile there. Then the next time somebody had detention, as we call that, they had to go and load it back onto the trailer and take it back to the other place and unload it again. So that, was, sound, uh, that does sound to some degree like uh, military training I've heard of with my brother and my stepfather. Yeah, well, it's just a it's just a point that we're trying to make. Now, you know, the Benedictines have been around since St. Benedict was born in 480. And it's generally conceded that he wrote the rule of Benedict in about 512 to 516. So uh, it's been around a while. I think it's one of these time-tested things. Sure. Seems to work. Yeah. All right. So you were there until you were 18, I assume? 19. 19. Yeah. Okay. And did you go straight into college or university with yeah. them? So it was, it was, at that time, it was a four-year high school and two years of college. Then you okay. went to the theology school and you had your last two years of regular college were pre-theology and then you studied theology. So in the after I was in seminary for about three years, the Catholic Church decided that it wasn't good having high school students and college students together. So they had Catholic seminaries that were just high schools, usually local things where the students lived at home. And then you would go to a seminary college and be with college age students and get get your undergraduate degree. And and then the process of that take your pre-theology and then for the last four years you would go to a theology school so the, the, the concept was there was 12 years educational process from of discernment from uh, the age of 14 basically to the age of 26 and they, they called it discernment you're always told that you you know God has called you but he may have called you just to come here and experience some of this and maybe not to be a priest, you, you're supposed to try to discern what the call call is. That's a difficult thing to do. Sure. And you know, one of the one of the things that really concerned me that I thought I'd have a great deal of difficulty with is that I was studying to be a parish priest and not a monk, a member of a community where you have support. But parish priests often live alone or maybe with one other priest, and usually. If it's one other priest, it's a senior priest with a younger priest. They don't have necessarily a lot in common, but the older priest is supposed to be mentoring the, the younger priest, helping them along. And it it's often a very lonely life. And I think I was intimidated by that to a great extent. I just I didn't really think that I that I could could bear fruit uh, for everyone in that type of, of a lifestyle. I thought the loneliness would just get to me too much. Hmm. So that and would I, lead that would lead me pardon? then to that would lead me then to your eventual departure from from the monastery, uh, or excuse me, seminary. Yeah. Um, what was that process? What was leaving the place, and, and where did you go? <laughs> well, I had a spiritual director. And I went and I talked with him and I told him what I was going through and all that. And, you know, he tried to give me some guidance. And then the Holy Week before Easter, we went on a three-day retreat. And he had suggested that I, you know, try to come to a decision about my discernment. 
during that retreat. And at the end of the retreat, it was all over the next week, I told him that yeah, I'd come to the decision that, you know, I needed to go elsewhere. And so I finished out the semester. I mean, they were very gracious. They, uh, my, uh, the monk who was over the college section, the two-year college section at that time later, now it's a four-year college section. He uh, came and got me out of study hall one evening shortly after I had talked to my spiritual director about this. And of course the faculty and the, and the monks, they kind of knew what was going on because the whole idea here is to help one another. So Father Jerome came and he tapped me on the shoulder in the study hall and said, come walk with me. So I went out and in front of the monastic building, um, there's a huge triangle where traffic comes in and flows around and parking area and all that. And he said, let's walk around the triangle. So we walked around the triangle and he talked to me and he basically said, um, you need, don't be too hard on yourself. Um, you know, this is what you always wanted to do. You decided this is not for you. Don't be so hard on yourself. And when you succeed, realize that you succeed and accept it. Because a lot of people who give up on a dream they have when they're young, they feel like the rest of their life, all they do is go from one failure to another. And you look upon this as a failure. It's not really a failure. It's a success because you came to the right decision. And that's the way you have to look at it. And I just thought, and that was the attitude I got from all the monks and, and from my fellow seminarians as I found out about it. And I just, I found that very supportive. I mean, it wasn't, uh, well, you're a quitter, and it wasn't, uh, thank God you're leaving, or anything like that. It was just this uh, wishing that, that the best, wishing me to understand that I made the best decision that I could make, and everything going forward would be the, that I would get the best out of life. Sure. So I'm still very close to the Abbey. I'm an oblate at, at the monastery, and I'm the chairman of the physical plant committee of the monastery and seminary college. I've been alumnus of the year. I uh, been on uh, served every position you can serve on the alumni association. I uh, started the alumni development uh, fund, where every year we have a fundraising thing, phonathon. Uh, what we call uh, alumni, and ask them to contribute for a particular goal, and it's. It's been very rewarding. I'm still very close with all those guys over there. And um, last year, Father Lawrence Phelps passed away. He was 94 and he was the last living monk who had taught me when I was in the seminary. Okay. And I was talking to Abba Justin and I said, you know, he was the last living monk that, that taught me when I was in the seminary. And he said, well, Frankie, I hate to tell you this, but you know who the senior monk is now? And I said, no, who's the senior monk? He said, Father Peter. Father Peter was Ned Hammett. And he's three years older than me. So the senior monk in the, in the monastery is only three years older than me. I said, damn, I feel right. <laughs> well, it's better than the alternative, but. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> so where did you, uh, what was the next step for you when you departed the uh, 
seminary? Well, I went to junior college for one semester and then I started, I had a friend of mine that father owned a charter boat. He had to reposition the boat because the fish were moving around and all that. So I decked with him while he was doing all of that. And then he asked me to stay and work for a while uh, as a deckhand. And I did that. And um, I learned a lot. Uh, I learned how to cut open a flying fish and put the leader in there with the big hook in it and sew it back up again. So when he skimmed across the top of the water, it didn't look like he was dead. Uh, it took me a while to perfect that. I probably destroyed two or 300 flying fish before I finally got it right, but learned how to do that. And I must say, that's a talent that I learned that I've never used anywhere else in my life. Right. <laughs> Understood. Right. So anyway, I did that. And then I, I went back and uh, I went to college. And when I was taking breaks and things like that, I would work on with marine construction outfits. And one of them, you know, they all had little tow boats. And one and of them this had little was... tow boats. This was the Pardon? junior college, the junior college years, or no? Uh, this is this is this. Well, when I was in the seminary, uh, Tim, we went to school six days a week, and right. we were in college school six days a week. Now, okay. Saturday was only a half day, but we carried twenty six semester hours. So I, because the when I finished my freshman year, I had fifty two semester hours, but. Okay. Four hours of the minor profits doesn't really transfer into anything at a secular university that you right. can use for a degree. So, um, so I, I came out of St. Ben with all these hours, and then one semester, I, and I was used to carrying, you know, a lot of hours. So I thought these people were carrying nine and twelve hours were idiots. I was carrying eighteen hours. 18 semester hours and, and, and worked on the side automobile dealership. But anyway, um, so I had so many hours when I was, I, I couldn't really take any more at a junior college level because you could only transfer a maximum. I believe it was, I think it was 66 semester hours is the most that you can transfer to a, to a college. And I had uh, Franconian Greek, which is what the Greek in which the uh, Old Testament was, was uh, the New Testament was written, okay. except for the Hebrews, uh, because a lot of people call it mercantile Greek. It was the Greek of the trade people, as opposed to Hellenistic Greek, but the proper name for it is Franconian. And It was hard to get that to transfer, so I had been taking Latin since I was in the ninth grade. So I went to the University of Southern Mississippi, and I went to the head of the foreign language department, and I said, "You know, I want to get these foreign languages in here, and I don't know how to do all this." And you know, I had four years of Latin in high school, and I had Latin in college. And she said, "What was your textbook?" And I said, "Bradley's Arnold, English Latin English Composition Workbook." She said, I had that in graduate school. If you can go back to the seminary and get a copy of their uh, catalog and a copy of the textbook and bring it back to me, 
I'll give you credit for two, 300 level courses. Okay. And you won't have to take any more and you'll get your BA and your language requirements are fulfilled and all of that. So I've, you know, I, I went around and I've talked to people. People are very helpful. If you go and you ask them and tell them what you're trying to accomplish, they, they will try to work with you. And that was the experience that I had then. And um, so I went to school, but I was paying my own way. I went to school for USM was on a quarter system back then. So I went a quarter and then I would drop out, make some money and then go another quarter and then okay. drop out. And, and, and so I did that. And uh, the summer of 69, I met my wife and went back to finish up. What, was she also at USM? Yeah, she was at USM also. Okay. She's two years younger than I am. Where did she study? I've been playing a, pardon? What did she study? Uh, elementary education. She was okay. a teacher. Okay. Taught for many years. But anyway, uh, when, when I first left the seminary, the first thing that happened is I got classified from 4D divinity student to 1A. And I called up for my physical, but I'd gotten my left hand caught in a lawnmower when I was a child and I lost part of my left thumb. I didn't happen when I was three years old. So I didn't think it was a, I've lived with it all my life and never considered it an infirmity. But the army told me that I was handicapped hmm. and I couldn't serve. Okay. Uh, they put me, they made me one Y, which uh, I thought was a mistake, but I wasn't worried about the draft after that because, you know, when you get to one Y, they're calling up the Quakers too. So I figured, it's gonna be a while before that happens. Yes, sir. So, so I didn't, I didn't have the draft hanging over my head like some of the people did. So um, we went to uh, went back to college that fall of '69, and then uh, in the winter uh, quarter of '69 '70, I got a really bad case of the flu, and lost. Uh, I was in the infirmary for two weeks. And I was, at that point in time, I was into my major, which was political science and philosophy, had a double major. And I didn't want to have bad grades and I didn't know I could get back to the level I wanted to be. So I went and talked to my faculty advisors and they suggested that I uh, withdraw while passing. So I withdrew and went back to the coast, but the coast had been demolished by Camille. So there was plenty of work available. And uh, so I worked, uh, on the coast and Jenny would come down on the weekends and I'd go up every now and then to see her. But what were uh, you doing? So what were you doing for work on the coast? Cleaning up houses, uh, repairing uh, doors and windows and, uh, you know, shoring up floors. It was just labor. Okay. Construction labor. Things like gotcha. that. Yeah. That was all. Um, so anyway, then I came back and then, um, we got engaged that summer, and then I finished uh, my coursework in the fall of 1970, but um, Jenny still had to do student teaching, and I didn't, uh, so I walked with her, graduated with her in the uh, spring of 72, uh, 71, I'm sorry, so it's spring of 71. And um, we got married in November of 70. 
So we've been married this this month. We're married 53 years. Good for you. 52, 50, yeah, 52 years. I uh, apologize. You're um, you're with your wife, and you're in the process of of finishing college. Is where I think we left off. Right. Yes. And we finished. I finished college, and we moved down to the Gulf Coast. Okay. And what did you go? What, what work did you go into at that point? So. My grandfather had a service station and he was a jobber for uh, our dealer, uh, excuse me, for uh, Pennzoil and Quaker State. Okay. And we sold Pennzoil and Quaker State lubricants to automobile dealerships and to stores and things like that. And that's basically what I did. I, uh, I kept those accounts up and uh, did sales calls on them, did deliveries for them and all of that stuff. And that was your father's business, you said? grandfather step grandfather's business okay yeah. and that, how what was uh how long did that last was that your first uh i guess sort of sales role yeah uh, how was it learning that on the fly i went bad i mean I, he had a lot of these people uh my grandfather been on the my step grandfather been on the coast for a very long time he was born on the coast in 1905 and he knew everybody just about. And a lot of these accounts were already established. Basically, the new accounts that I worked on were either people that approached us or new businesses that were opening. Okay. And, uh, and I did, you know, I'd say I was doing sales work, but it's more like customer service work. You sure. know, and these people, uh, you know, they, it's, it's, it's like being a deckhand on a towboat, you know. It's Monday morning, you got to make the grocery order, and the thing says, how many cans of green beans do you have? If you have less than three, then order it. If you have right. more than three, more, don't order it. Right. It was, was kind of like that. You know, you'd go into to a, a store, and you'd see what they, you'd have a sheet that told you what they typically ha had, and you would count. And then you would say, you know, you're down to a case of this oil, and They'd say, okay, give me another case or a case and a half or whatever. We had a, a, a particular oil that was made by, uh, oh, it's the West Memphis Refining Company in West Memphis, Arkansas. It's called Rebel. Uh, it was a non-detergent, 30-weight oil. So okay. for like 20, 20 cents a quart. That was, and when you got out to the little country stores where these people had, automobiles that were really some of them you know they'd go into the service station and say fill it up with oil and check the gas because they were just oil burners and that was a really really popular when you got out in the rural areas you would sell a lot of that yeah, i think when i worked in uh, in oil and gas distribution uh, in trucking i think the six the six quart boxes of mobile one were like 25 26 dollars so that's yeah. what four dollars a quart in what year was that you said uh, 72, 71, so 40 years at what? Six times as much as six times as expensive. But, um, anyway, so, uh, you, you did that for how long? I did that until, uh, until the, uh, I started work at Minnesota Harbor service on May the 4th, 1972. I okay. had, uh, I had put my ad in the, I told my stepfather, my step grandfather, that 
you know, I wanted to go and do something else. And I, so he continued to work until I found a job. And then uh, I moved up to, to uh, St. Paul's and then Jenny stayed and finished teaching. She was teaching second grade. She finished her school year out and then she moved up there with me. Okay. Yes, I started on May the 4th. She got back, she got up there about the 6th or 7th of June. Okay. How was that? How was that month of freedom? <laughs> well, it wasn't a month of freedom. I was drinking from a fire hose, man. <laughs> uh, you know, the uh, navigation season had been closed for the winter. It had opened up, and at the beginning of May, spring is breaking out all over in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and it did. I mean, it's in a week. Everything turned from uh, gray and brown and black to green. Sure. And just took off. And I was, we had a bunch of boats who were running and I wasn't familiar with the harbor. And um, we had a, uh, uh, so below Minneapolis, St. Paul at Hastings, you got Lock and Dam 2. And Lock and Dam 1 is right there by the Ford Motor Company plant, right by where the uh, Minnehaha Falls are. And, but that's not on the Mississippi, that's in a park adjacent to it. So Lock and Dam 1 is also called the Ford Dam because the, uh, the dam was built by Ford Motor Company and it was a hydroelectric dam. Um, it didn't produce a lot of hydropower. It was strictly for the, for the plant. And of course, during the winter, the, the river would freeze and uh, you know, it didn't produce any at all, but they had some there. And then above Lock and Dam 1, you had the falls of St. Anthony, which is why Minneapolis is built where it was. They used the power from the waterfalls to turn the, the, the grinders and for wheat and all of that stuff. And but the falls of St. Anthony are two-step falls. So you had a lower lock called St. Anthony Lower that locked you up to where the flat area was between the falls. Then you went up to Upper St. Anthony and then that locked you up. And you got up on the other side, the navigation channel probably went for maybe 12, 15 miles. Then there was a railroad bridge across there that uh, you couldn't get under, even with a retractable. And that was the de facto head of navigation of the Mississippi River. The, there was a, they built it where they built it because they built a railroad bridge where they built it because there was a, a power plant there, NSP uh, Riverside, it was called Northern States Power Riverside. And it took rail shipments of coal during the winter and it took uh, barge shipments of coal during the late spring, summer, and early fall. Okay. So they would get nation. They were blending coal from uh, Powder River Basin area and all that, which is low BTU coal with more southern Illinois, southern Illinois and southern Indiana coal, which is higher BTU. Okay. And what developed out of that, um, out of that job, I guess, aside from the relationship? Uh, I learned, I learned a lot because we, we loaded a lot of barges uh, once the Russian grain deal had come about. And I got to know a lot of people and there were opportunities all over the place. And uh, the, uh, the, the company was owned by a gentleman named Frank Eipel. 
uh, out of uh, Stillwater, Minnesota. And he had a barge line called Eiffel Towing. And <clears throat> we were managing HTBL's fleet and we had some other fleets up there and people were wanting us to build tow for them. They wanted to drop their tow and have us break it up and strip it. But we didn't have enough horsepower to do that. How many boats did you have? We had five, I believe. And what, what size yeah. were they? The biggest one was the Cayuga. It was 2,400. Okay. But most of them, the Tom Thumb was 400. Okay. Um, as you expect. The rest of them were 800 to 1,000 horsepower. And we serviced up the Minnesota River all the way to Savage, where the big grain elevators are there. And at that time, Peavy had a grain elevator 17 miles above head of navigation on a privately dredged channel that they maintained. And we had a boat, William Kimball, that ran uh, back and forth up there. So we were kind of kind of uh, limited as the number of boats that we had. So if we were doing all the shifting and spotting that they wanted us to do, it was hard to break and make tow. So <laughs> we located a boat in St. Louis uh, and we put together a business plan and gave it to Mr. Eiffel about bringing that boat up to make and break tow uh, in the St. Paul Harbor. And basically he said, no, it wasn't a good idea. Okay. So um, the three of us that had done that, we got together and we decided, well, we would, we would build, we would buy the boat and we would put it to work. And they wanted to get the work lined up before we went ahead and bought it. So if I may, what, what did a boat go for back then? Twenty twenty four, twenty five thousand dollars. Hmm. <laughs> Single screw, Fairbanks Morris, a post piston, six hundred and forty horsepower. Somebody said it looked like a sea monster had tied had crawled up through our stern tubes and died in the engine room. Right. Anyway, anyway uh, so we, we, they did that. So I didn't, I went and talked to, uh, talked to Central Sawyer about working at Red Wing when the navigation season began. And um, we also talked with a group at Grundy County Marine about our boat working up there during the winter. So this is the, this is the beginning of the winter of 1972. So those two guys resigned from, two partners resigned from, they were both licensed. Well, he didn't have to be licensed in those days, but they had both been towboat operators for quite a while. Gotcha. They resigned and they, we put the boat working for Archer Daniels Midland Art Co. Uh, and because they were the last company to leave, they had the last two toads out of Minneapolis, St. Paul. And when they, were, when they would get into the locks, the ice was jamming up on them. So we would wash the locks out okay. for them to bring those in. And um, so we got a job them going all the way uh, down to Alton. And it was a month and a half to get down there. Sure. Or more. Probably more. So, um, I stayed though to complete the billing and because the navigation season had ended, um, but we still had 
willingly had to get get out and chase everything down, make sure all the, the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed and all of that. So I stayed on and did that. And then um, then I resigned from the company. And uh, so I went to, uh, I, rode a, I rode on the boat and I had a typewriter and I would, and, and a checkbook and I would uh, get the logs and type out the billing information because when we sent the bill to Artco, we had to tell them whose barges we touched and all this, so they because they were rebilling stuff also. So every uh, every day I would type up all of this stuff and then would mail it when we got the next lock, and okay. uh, and it would go on out. And then I had the I had the checkbook and. Um, we would we had to do our pace process so that we were near a, a bank where we could put the withholding for Social Security and uh, federal income tax into the bank because you had so many working days to do it before after you had written the ch checks. Okay. And we had to do all of that. So, so I was kind of keeping up with that stuff. And then I was decking also. Um, we. We're very concerned about uh, having just one deckhand on the weather deck at night. Uh, so as much as possible, whenever a deckhand had to go out on the weather deck at night, we would wake the, another deckhand up to send out with them. We were limited. Sure. So we had there were basically three deckhands and two pilots, and I was the third deckhand, and I was also the clerk. Right. And... <clears throat> And those Fairmax Morris, those OPs, they're like those wood burning, those again, oil burning cars I was talking about earlier. That thing went through a lot of lube oil. Yeah. They had some 55 gallon drums of lube oil up on the deck. And of course, at the, those cold temperatures, the stuff was like molasses. It poured out. You'd have to cut it hmm. with a board, you know, a shingle. Right. You'd cut it that so it would and then it would flop down you have to wait till it oozed out and then you'd bring it to the engine room and you had to leave in the engine room for about 20 or 30 minutes before you could pour it into the engine because otherwise it was just too thick right so <laughs> we had to keep all our uh soft lines uh in the engine room when they weren't in use on a on a, on a coupling they were in the engine room so otherwise they would freeze and you right. couldn't use them right anyway uh, I was. I had worked on a deckhand as a deckhand before, but never, and I'd gone through industrial lock uh, in New Orleans, but I had never gone through a series of locks like I did on the uh, up in St. Paul, because right. we would go through a lock and we would only have one deckhand during the daytime, and they would require two deckhands for locking. So I would leave the office and drive to the lock, get on, be this second deck in and as they were leaving the lock i'd get back in my car and drive back to the office yeah but uh so it was it was, uh, it was a big learning experience but we uh we got down through all of that and then when we got over there to Grand county marine uh the people that owned that 
place. I forgot their names now. They mentioned an area that didn't have service, uh, tug service. And uh, the other two guys wanted to stay down there even through the summer. And I had made this agreement, and they too made this agreement with Central Soya, and they said, no, we're not going to go back up there. Ultimately, they did, which is kind of it's interesting. But uh, and I said, you know, I think you're lo- you're missing out on a big opportunity here. And I I don't I don't want to be dealing with this because I don't think it's right. Y'all buy me out. Okay. And they did. And I said, just what I've got in it, and I'm gone. So I called up uh, ACBL. Had been asking me earlier if I would consider working for them back in the Gulf. So I called them and I said, you know, if that's still open, I'm interested. And they said, well, can, you, can you catch a flight tomorrow and come down here? We'll have a ticket waiting for you. So I flew down to Jeffersonville and talked with them and they hired me. And I went back up, put my wife on a plane, sent her back down to the Gulf. And then I drove down to Jeffersonville and went through my orientation and all of that. And drove down and started working in the Gulf, ACBL. What was your role there? Originally, I was uh, training under Al Redu to uh, handle all the shifts in the New Orleans Harbor, particularly the, the, the loading of steel and things like that, because we would have often two or three ships that we would put into one barge, and you had to kind of coordinate all of that. And uh, because of the, uh, the uh, less than barge load lots, it would shifting would have to be done often while the uh, while the longshoremen were there working. So they had to be done very timely. Otherwise, you'd have a big delay on your labor force and that didn't make the customers very happy. How many but, how many boats and fleets did ACBL operate at that point down here? At that point, they operated the West Wego fleet. Um, Dockside? And, no, they had West Wego fleet. They had... Uh, Harahan fleet. Okay. Uh, those were the only two fleets that they had. Uh, they used. Um, where was West Wego fleet? It was where the Grand Elevator is going so down it's, below. It's, it's cargo. cargo. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And um, we used Domino, Joe Domino, Domino Towing, uh-huh. um, doing most of those uh, shipside shifting and things like that. So anyway, um, then they uh, wanted me to work in the canal, but they had signed these uh, contracts with the salt companies uh, where they were guaranteed the salt companies a certain number of barges per week. And with prior notice, the salt companies could demand more or could say, no, we don't need that anymore. Okay. Or if we weren't able to make the commitment for that week, we had to give them advance notice. And it was a series of debits and credits. Nobody okay. wanted to pay courage and all this. So you would keep set of the, so keeping up with those contracts, because that was with uh, Weeks, Coblanche, uh, Avery, and uh, Jay, Jefferson Island, J.I. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
because Belle Isle had just closed. When I got down to the Gulf Coast, that was that last mine collapse at Belle Isle. Right. And Carl closed that. Right. At the time. And um, so anyway, so we had all we had these five uh, salt companies and these five salt contracts. So they put me on the bulk liquids to be a backup for Tony Labruzzo, who handled all the uh, liquids, bulk liquids, because the vast majority of the bulk liquid movements were done on the canal. And since I was dealing with the canal boats, uh, you know, put me in that. And that's how I broke into dealing with uh, bulk liquids. So if, if I may backtrack a little bit, how many barges per week were all these mines requesting? I think during the, when the season was, was going pretty good, you could wind up with 35. So I want to say that, uh, so a, a salt company, and but sometimes it would be more than that because we would be trying to catch up. We were, if we were in a hole and owed them barges and barge days, we would try to stick more in there. So I think that the way the thing was, as I recall, so they could load, we, they could say to us, oh, we had to say, we will provide you with seven barges a week, every week. And, but you can say, give us three week advance notice and say, I'm only taking three barges this coming, that week, and I'm right. taking seven. I'll catch up over time. So <clears throat> if you had all, all five mines working and you were delivering seven barges a week to all five mines, that'd be 35 barges. Okay. So, uh, but it sometimes it was a little more than that. Sometimes a little less. Um, <clears throat> the uh, it was interesting. I got to go into all the salt mines. You know, went down there and toured them all, and all of that kind of stuff. But I was also working with Tony Labruzzo, and um, the the salt mine contract administration was not that difficult on the weekends. You do every other weekend. <laughs> but tank barge activity never stopped. It was always pretty heavy. And these are 10,000 barrel tank barges we're talking about, the old Kim barges. And um, so you had to be on top of your game. So when Tony was off, uh, I would be responsible for all the, the tankers. So he would start telling me Friday morning what was going on for the weekend and right. all of that. And and so I got to know a few people in the business and got to know uh, characteristics of some of the bulk liquids and all this kind of stuff. And my family was getting bigger. <clears throat> and Jenny, uh, we already had a son and Jenny was expecting again. And Shotan Transportation had an opening. They wanted a sales guy. So uh, I applied for the job. Okay. And so they also had uh, 75 grain barges at that time. They had been bought by Ohio River Company, and the barges were slowly going over to the Ohio River Company. But until it went all the way over, I was supposed to book the grain barges too. So I had experience on the grain side. And then backing up to Tony Labruzzo, I'd got experience on the bulk liquid side. Right. So they, they hired me. And that meant I didn't have to do weekend work, theoretically. <clears throat> which mean, meant I could be available to help my wife with the newborn daughter that we had coming along and, and my young son. Yes, sir. So 
I went to work for for a Showtime, and I uh, I was their sales guy. We got finally got rid of the grain barges. I did sales work on all the tank barge fleet, and um, they wanted to uh, look at getting heavy the six oil. They weren't sure they wanted to do that or not. So they gave me a job of doing marketing research and development on six oils. So I took about four or five months and did all of that. At the end of that time, they decided that they were already in the six oil business, but they decided they wanted to stay on the clean side. Okay. So um, Scott Showtan had sold Showtan to the Ohio River Company five years previously, and he had a no-compete clause with him. And he uh, was building marine equipment. And they had Showtan, Ohio River Company, had the first right to use the equipment. <clears throat> and when they didn't want a piece of equipment, Scott Showtan Jr. and Lynn Sherrill had formed a company called Canal River Towing. And they called me and asked me to come on board as sales guy because they were going to be operating a lot more bulk liquid equipment. Okay. I didn't know the timing on this, but so I came on board to them as vice president of sales. And two months later, Scott's five-year non-compete was up. Uh, he bought Canal River Towing from assets out from under the company, renamed the operating company Scott Showtan Inc., and we were off and running. Okay, good for him. So, yeah. So anyway, all that got done. So um, fast forward a year, eighteen months, something like that. Um, I had been negotiating a deal with Dow Chemical to uh, put a lot of most of our equipment to work for Dow Chemical on a very long term contract. Okay. And Captain Scott had gone on a trip around the world. And uh, you know, he and, and Pat, Miss Pets, went on the uh, QE2. And while they were gone, uh, Lynn Sherrill and James Yonfro, and I guess Scotty was involved in it too, I don't know. They made a deal with a brokerage company called Elias Marine, which was Lou Meese and Dick Keenitz and uh, some other guy. That they would be doing, Scott Showtan Inc. Had a, had a methanol tow working for DuPont through this brokerage group, okay. Joe Showtime. And that contract was about up. Well, this group, Alliance Marine Group, basically convinced Lynn and John Fro and Scotty that they could keep all the equipment busy and they would take care of everything for a Slight percentage, I don't know what it was. Might have been two and a half percent, it might have been less than that. But anyway, but they said, well, you know, Frank's still our uh, sales guy. And they said, well, here's our list of customers. And y'all can't, if we do this agreement, y'all can't compete with these guys. You can't solicit business from these guys. He could work with anybody else. 
well, hell, it was just about everybody in the industry. So they showed that to me, and I said, no, that's not right. I said, I've almost got this deal done with Dow, and Dow was on there. We don't need to pay these people any money. And um, Lynn said, well, that's the way it's going to be. And I said, well, you know, you don't need me anymore. And they said, well, if we don't need you, then we don't need you. And I said, well, all right, fine. <laughs> you know, not a problem. Yep. He said, well, you know, you came on to work here under this. We don't want to leave you. You leave with a bad taste. And, you know, we, it's a decision we made and all that. So we will pay you for the coming year and keep you on the medical, which was great because my wife was eight months pregnant at the time and with my youngest, Timothy, and Keep you on the medical. We'll do that for up to a year. But when you find a job, you let us know. And we're going to, when you get picked up by the other coverage medical plan and all that, we're going to cut everything off. Right. I said, okay, that's fair. That's, that's, I don't have a problem with that at all. Good enough. So I left and I got, I got offered a bunch of jobs. Most of them involved moving though and didn't want to move. And uh, Harvey uh, Lumier and Fritz Winhorst had started a company that they wanted to do uh, towing brokerage and vessel brokerage and stuff like that called Harwin. And they asked me to come over and start the company from the ground up and build it up and all of that. And I said, okay, that's what I'll do. Because that allowed me to stay where I was. And, and how many boats <laughs> did you have starting at starting that up? None. Zero boats. Okay. Zero. Zero boats. It was just me. All right. Uh, and so I talked to some people and I got some people to say, yeah, we'll work a boat through you and all this. And I finally built up a staff and um, got an accountant, got, uh, anyway, it was three of us brokering boats and barges and freight. Um, and Lumiere's company, Harvey Industries, was in bankruptcy, and he was trying to come out of bankruptcy, and he had a plan it submitted to their uh, board of creditors. And one of the creditors, I'm not sure who it was, said that they thought that they were sheltering money under this <clears throat> Harwin thing they'd heard about, Lumiere was involved in. So they, one of the ways they would agree to this thing was if Lumiere divested himself of, uh, he and Windhorst divested themselves of their interest in Harwin. So they came to me and said, you know, we're going to shut this thing down or you can buy it. I said, well, what do you want to sell it for? He said, we don't want it. We don't want any money at all. We'll give it to you. But we borrowed some money from this bank to start it, $20,000. Okay. And that was our seed money. And they said, you know, you're the one that's got all this thing going. It's a going concern now. You can pay this off in cash flow, but you know, you it's your decision on what, what to do with all of this. Now, what what year is this? What year is this? This is Christmas of 78. Okay. So they wanted to take it out by the end of the year. So I went to a my wife had a cousin who we were very close to. She was a retired uh, school teacher and 
anyway, she she had she was relatively well off, so I borrowed uh, twenty thousand dollars from her for sixty days because I knew by then my receivables would have come in. I could pay her off, which I did. Sure, gave me the money. So <clears throat> right there at the new year, I bought the company. Okay, <clears throat> and then I ran the company. Um, we built a bunch of barges. We had some barge partnerships that we were running. We had a barge fleet, cleaning and repair service. And where was anyway, it? Pardon? Where was the uh, your fleet and repair? The, uh, the the fleet and repair was commercial fleet. It was what's now the lower end of uh, Art Coast Fleet there, between American Sanamid, which is called something else now. I forgot. Is this Sanamid? Art Coast Sarah or Canizero? 110 or 110? This is the old two-lane fleet. This is all okay. by one, okay. 118, 119. I want to say, say 114, but I'm not sure on that. Yeah, I think 114 is that lower end of Amherst. Or is that, that's it's Flowers. There. 114 is Flowers. Anyway. Well, what flowers, but they, 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 they don't even have a fleet over there anymore, do they? There's some activity at 114 now. I think it's at a truck dock. Pardon? I think it's at a truck dock. Oh no, that's that may be on the on the east bank, but this fleet was on the west bank. Okay. American American Sinaman, we service their dock and all that stuff. Anyway, to make a long story short, um, I had a, three three partners in that, and we sold the company off and. Uh, split it up and different people took different parts and everything. And then um, I started um, a company called Mohawk Services and I was doing uh, owner's rep work and surveying and a little bit of marine brokerage and stuff like that. And I did that. That company still exists. It's just dormant. But I quit operating it in um, in 1991, because I'd started Turn Services in 1990. Okay. And it was beginning to take all my time. Sure. And um, did so, you did you start that by yourself, or were there partners for Turn Services? <clears throat> so I had uh, originally there was just two of us: George Faust and I. <clears throat> and then George uh, had to get out, so he. Uh, I had a friend named Jim Johnston and Jim came in and uh, bought George out and Jim stayed uh, with me until I sold the company to Associated Terminals and or David and Gary, the owners of Associated Terminals. And I, by that time, we picked up a third partner, Jim Harrington, who was a friend of mine. And Jimmy had, had purchased some deck barges and he had been um, running, chartering them out and the charter hire was up and Basically, uh, we took those barges over and uh, built our cleaning plants on those deck barges. Okay. And that was his equity contribution to the to the company. And so he got some portion of the company from that. Um, so anyway, we we started up at Burnside with Ormet Corporation. We ran their fleets and did cleaning and repair up there. And then we were up at Cooper Darrow also. And, uh, then um, 
we started the uh, Sonny Ivy from ACBL called me. And I had worked with Sonny when I was in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and when I was with ACBL. And um, we got along really good. He called me and he said, you know, we bought SCNO barge line. I said, yeah, I'd heard about that. He said, well, they have a cleaning plant at Lewing. We have a cleaning plant at, at Harahan. And I want to do some of that cleaning and repair plant up there. So I'm asking people to come and take a look at this stuff and give us some suggestions on what we should do with this or what they would be willing to do with this on our behalf. So I said, okay, fine. So I think there was seven or eight of us that went up there at different times, looked at all the equipment and everything, and only two people made proposals. Um, and I don't even know who the other company was. But <clears throat> I proposed, I found some land, so go back a couple of months. Um, Nemco Barge Line, George Fouts had worked with Nemco Barge Line, and he wanted to uh, clean barges down there, but they didn't have a water discharge permit for cleaning barges. So I got one for Devant. And I would go down and clean barges with a three inch pump and okay. four or five and uh, open hoppers. So we'd clean them out of the coal and then they would load some kind of ore or something in them northbound. And it was a very big advantage for barge lines. They didn't have to bring an empty back up from there. They got northbound load. The uh, terminal generated additional income. So it was pretty good for everybody. And I saw that business growing. So I went to Sonny and I said, you know, this is what I want to do. I'd like to take it down there and get a cleaning and repair plant. And he said, okay, go. I, and I was using Electricals and IMT's fleets at that time. <clears throat> he said, go and find some land. So I went down there. <clears throat> I found this land on the East Bank above Electrical. And I went and talked with this lady. And my deal was that um, I was getting all my permits, my fleeting permits and all of that stuff. And I wouldn't start paying lease on the property until I uh, got the permits in hand. Well, her lawyer, he had gotten burned on a deal like this years before. And he said, no, <clears throat> if you don't have your permits by this particular date, it doesn't make a difference. You got to start paying. So I went to Sonny and I said, um, you know, I, this is what happened. I don't have the money to carry this thing and all of that. He said, well, all right, just we'll let me let me talk. So anyway, he went and talked to Bob Zane and Hagen and uh, Whitlock, came back and he said, you sign, we're going to sign the lease with this lady and we'll sign a mirror lease with you. And we're going to ask her to give us last look on the property to buy it. And we will give you last look on the property to buy it if we go to sell it. And this is or mile this is mile mile fifty six. Yep. Okay. So I said, great. I figured out how to how to uh, I had gotten a way to pay for the 
uh, finance the cleaning and repair dock. Um, but I told Sonny, I said, you know, I don't, I got to put the moorings in and I don't have anything for this. He said, look, we're going to finance the whole damn thing. <laughs> nice of well, him. Yes. So we're going to finance the SCNO 1602 and the other three spar barges we're going to put in a spar barge fleet and we're going to build you a ramp and you're going to have to pay us off in seven years at this much interest rate i said okay <laughs> so we did sure and, and it worked and it, it I, so in, in the meantime acbl buys valley line Valley Line had bought flowers and they got that coal contract. They had that coal contract going over to, um, oh, oh, let's say electric fuels, that's not it. It's a Crystal River, yeah, Crystal River, Florida Power and Light. Okay. And so Markowitz comes over to ACBL and Markowitz, me and Hagen having dinner one night in New Orleans and they're telling me what they need me to do. Yeah, Markowitz who had come over from Valley Line and Hagen. And um, I think Finley might've even been there. I had met David Finley when, when we were working up at uh, Ormet at Burnside. He and Dan Barker were had uh, the associated terminals thing up there at that point in time. And uh, I had gotten to be friends with David back then. I think David might have been there too. Anyway, the, so the, the, um, the summer, bef the, the fall before the harvest was disappointing. I forgot what year this is. Probably sometime in the 90s. Okay. Anyway, the, the harvesting had been disappointed and ACBL had a huge northbound book. And it didn't look like they were going to have, and it was covers, it didn't look like they were going to have the covers in the Gulf to cover this thing. So Markowitz has this scheme. He's going he's gonna to take all the covers, all of the coal that's going to Florida Power and Light, and he's going to put it in stack covered barges and send it to IMT to have them unloaded. But IMT is charging him like $1,500 for every barge that has stack covers. Okay. And they ask him about spreading them and they want like $3,000 to have the covers then to spread them again and all this. Anyway, so uh, Markwood says, you need a crane. You need to be able to spread covers. Take So what we're going to do is we're going to bring all the barges into turn services fleet. So I take an option on the other the rest of the 2,800 feet that that uh, Alma Peterson owned. And Sonny and them come in and install this fleet, put more spar barges on. I got more debt now with ACBL. I need to finance thing, but I've been paying some stuff down. And... Um, I don't have a crane. So I run into Charlie Metcalf and I said, Charlie, 
you were refitting some crane. He said, yeah, I got this crane from the Army Corps of Engineers. It's power up and power down. I said, oh, it's not breaking. He said, oh, no, it's, she works pretty fast. He said, I'm impressed with it. I just don't have anything for it to do. So I told him what Markowitz was trying to do. And he said, well, let me give this to Keith. This will be a great project for Keith to break his teeth on. So <clears throat> they bring the barges down there and uh, Metcalf gets the Derek down there and we tell Keith how many barges are out there. And we didn't have any boats at this time. We're still not operating any boats. We're buying power in from IMT and from Electrical as we need it. They had given us discounts because they used us for other services and things. Right. So, uh, so I'd call Keith and say, you know, we got this many barges. And Keith would show up with the crew and they would take the covers off the barges. And we had these barges that were part of the old paint shop of, of SCNO. They would store the, the, the covers there, take the barges across the way. They'd clean them out in no time. We'd bring them back. They'd put the covers back on them and we'd wash them. And they'd send them up, load out of New Orleans Harbor or up above to go north. So we did this. And, and before, before I made the deal with Metcalf, Markowitz, that same dinner, he says, you know, whether or not ACBL makes any money this year may depend on whether or not Frank Morton has a crane to handle covers in Myrtle Grove. Okay. Really? He said, yeah. Well, Bob Zane at this point in time was no longer the guy at ACBL. It was Hagen. And um, because of the way things happened, uh, that coming fall, ACBL, because of all this industrial stuff, Illumina and all this, they were sending up the Ohio River from these barges that had been coal barges with stacked covers we had taken off and then respread the covers and then cleaned the barges and they loaded Illumina and they went north. They wound up with the bulk of their covered fleet on the Ohio River when harvest was supposed to start. But again, the harvest on the upper didn't come through. It was a bumper crop, crop, crop whew, bumper crop off the Ohio. Yes, sir. ACBL made like a hundred million dollars in one quarter. Well, good for them. Yeah, it was a record. I forgot exactly. Somebody tell you exactly what the numbers were. I don't remember. But uh Hagen, Hagen was honest about the whole thing. I said, Mike, man, I can't believe what happened. He said, you know, John Snow called me and he said, Mike, you did a hell of a job. And he said, John, I got lucky. Yeah. <laughs> I just got lucky. I just haven't been in the right place at the right time. I'm not going to take credit for that. I just got right. lucky. And, and they did. So I told Markowitz when I saw him coming February, Mississippi Valley Trade Transport Conference, I said, Where's my portion of the all the money y'all made last year? You told me it was depending on me whether or not I spread those covers. And he laughed and said, "You got paid." Yep, ain't that something? Yep, but I had a deal with Charlie, uh, so we decided how much we were going to. We made a deal with HCBL on how much money they were willing they were willing to pay us to take those covers off and then respread them, and then we got a exact number from IMT and Electrico on setting the, the barge in position and taking it off. 
So we knew exactly what our costs were. And then we just did a cost share. He got, I think, 85% of the coverage fee. I got 15% for doing the dispatch work and all that, but I got the cleaning and the repair and I was happy as could be. So I'm still doing this stuff with IMT and Electrico and IMT decides they're going to put a cleaning plan in and I'm competition, so they don't want to do any more business with me. Hmm. And um, so I, Electrico's helping me out and working all this stuff. So I uh, get this telephone call from uh, Chris Brinker. And he says, need to have lunch at Copeland's in Elmwood tomorrow. Be there at 11.30. I said, okay, fine. So I get in my car, I drive in, get to the table, and there's Whitlock, uh, Bill Kinsler, and Brinkup. And Brinkup says, I said, what's up? All these guys, you got the heavy artillery out here. He said, Morton? It is the dream of every fleet operator not to have to own and crew boats. You've been living the dream. The dream is over. Hmm. You must buy a boat. I said, hey, guys, I ain't got any money. <laughs> he says, Whitlock says, don't worry. We have a boat. We'll finance. <laughs> yep. I said, oh. Holy cow. So it takes a while to get all this stuff worked out. We get it all worked out and all of that. And lo and behold, there's been a the area where the boat was being held, there's been a voltage leak. There's a live wire that's been in the water. All right. And eaten the hell out of the bottom of that damn boat. Okay. So we got to pull the boat out. We got to, you know, replace the bottom plate and go through the fuel tanks and potable water and all this kind of stuff. And the engines are dead. Yeah. So ACBL lowers the asking price on it. And I went to Caterpillar and said, look, if I buy engines from you guys, will you all finance the boat for me? And they said, yeah, we will. So I went to my bank, Whitney, and I said, can I get a construction loan? I got a takeout on the backside of it. And they said, okay, fine. So that's what we did. So Jim Harrington uh, decided he was going to come on board and he was going to go through that boat. But let me tell you, you take a towboat apart, put it back together, you learn all about towboats. Jimmy right. Harrington, expert in about three months because he was eating, he was drinking from the fire hose and doing it 24 hours a day. And we took that boat apart and put it back together and that was the valley sunrise now the sir barton okay and, what, what did a, what did a boat cost at this point oh i don't even remember <laughs> oh, a lot more than <laughs> right a lot more than that uh that uh single screw fairbanks morris op did i'm gonna say you know it's got new engines got new gensets got a brand new hull um Marvin Dore came over there and helped us out a little bit on some uh, advice on some things to put in and how to save money and how to save yourself uh, time on maintenance later on. And 
I think it was, I think it was pushing 400. Okay. But I don't think it was there. But anyway, um, so, so we, uh, we wound up with that. And I just not getting traction, you know, I'm, 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 I've got more assets, um, but lost a little business to IMT because they started barge cleaning and repair over there. Um, so hoping to get a little more traction with uh, Electrico being more aggressive and going after tonnage, but they weren't doing it. They started a midstream thing. They put buoys in. They got a deal with Associated Terminals, and they came down there and did some transfers at that buoy. And then, I don't know, the Electrical decided they were going to go ahead and keep going to shore and back from shore. So I'm thinking about ways to increase my revenue, uh, increase my business levels and all this. And ACBL is kind of trying to do the same thing. And I went to Norb and I said, look, Norb, I'm looking down there at what's going on. We got Electrico, we got IMT, and we got turn services. And they both want turn services, but they don't want to pay for it. Okay. They want to squeeze me out. They can't now because they can't choke me on the boat power because I got the I right. got the, the, the Valley Sunrise. And I'm thinking to myself, what do they have that I don't have? Why do they load and unload ships? Well, I don't have any land, but I've got a place to put midstream buoys. Right. I understand about three quarters of a million dollars to do one of these things. And Sonny, uh, Norb said, that's about right. I said, I had already approached Finley because Finley had been down there with associated terminals, but right. I had to be very gingerly about this thing because I didn't, couldn't be ACBL, the way they had treated me and everything, it was my obligation to be straight up with them on anything that was going on. And sure. I'm trying to feel my way around. So I'm sitting there in Norb's office and I said, you know, I can't afford buoys, but even if I did, I don't have a dairy. Whitlock leans over and says, Morton, you need to call David Finley. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, we've had a conversation or two. And he said, you need to talk to David Finley. That's what you need to do. I said, okay, fine. So David and Gary and I met at a coffee shop in Ponchatoula, Louisiana, I guess every other week for a couple of months <laughs> and kind of ironed and figured out how we were going to do this thing and what the method was going forward and all of this stuff. And, uh, you know, and the only other person that knew anything about it was Whitlock. I just kind of say, you know, we're talking and it's like, like, good, good, great. And finally we came together with something and they said, well, you know, we'll merge the companies. And I said, no, I said, Jim Johnston, my friend really wants out and, and, and my, my friend Jim Harrington, he would he would like to get out to these other things he would like to do. He'll stay on for a while to help with the operation side. He's got some other things that he wants to do. <clears throat> and, you know, so that's me and I'd be a very small minority owner. And you guys are both a lot younger than I am. 
I mean, David's 17 years younger than I am. Okay. And Gary's younger than, than David. I said, about the time you guys are in your stride, I'm going to be looking, walking out the door. And, you know, I, I've been impediment to you guys. So why don't I, I just, I'll stay on. I'll, you know, we'll meet you settle agreement, you know, pay the money. And I'll take mine out over time. And and I'll stay and run the company. Uh, and they said, okay, we want to sign a, a three-year agreement and and uh, and a non-compete after that for three years. I said, okay, I don't have a problem with that. But the other two, they're not going to sign any non-competes or anything like that. So we made a deal. And um, so I stayed. That, and so right after we sold the company, I turned to Dave and Gary and I said, so what do you give me orders on what you want me to do and where we go from here and what direction we headed in? David says, run it like you own it. Gary said, yep. I said, okay, fine. So I was doing that. And then about three years down the line, um, David, Gary says, uh, well, you want to sign another contract? I said, no, not really. I said, um, you know, as long as I enjoy what I'm doing, I want to continue to do it. And if you don't like the way I'm doing it, you just quit paying me. You quit paying <laughs> me, I'm not going to work. Right. They laughed and said, okay, fine. I mean, that's we that's all we ever had. I mean, we had a great working relationship there. Two, two guys, good to work with. Very good to work with. Good and, uh, it, yeah, it worked out. worked out well. They, I mean, they're, they're both straight shooters they're only up and up they're good guys sure so anyway that's uh i guess that's where we got to turn services and where turn services is now and then the synergies work between the companies they put the buoys in down there brought the crane down there we wind up getting the floating grain elevator down there they got to deal with miro fleet we found the property on the west bank they got the midstream berths in there and it just you know, the working relationship has, has done very well and, and there's good communications and they work really good as a team. The, uh, I mean, the, the people on the rigs or the derricks that, that associated know all of the fleet people and mm -hmm. they know, you know, they're friends and they've been around and they communicate very well with one another. And, uh, you know, when they have a problem, they work it out. Right. Um, they look after. They look out after each other and that's a that's a big thing so uh it's been one of those very fortuitous things everybody kept their job and it ex expanded i mean turn services a workforce of over 400 people and um you know i'm proud of that as i am of anything i mean there's right people with good paying jobs and they take care of their families and all of that and that's as far as i'm concerned that's a hell of a legacy I would say so. That's I think that's why I reached out to you for this conversation. What are you doing with yourselves these days? Well, um, so I'm, I'm still on the board of directions of Turn Services, um, which doesn't require a lot. I mean, the management team they've got over there between Mario and mm -hmm. and and Todd and Kevin and Gary. I mean, it's they they do they do very well um 
So I'm also on the board of directors of America's Watershed Initiative. Um, I had done some fundraising for them earlier. On, uh, Tell me what their mission is. So they, they, they take a holistic approach to the uh, watershed of the Mississippi River. So the, America's great watershed. And they try to approach it so that there's a, a holistic approach that respects the need for abundant clean water, uh, the environment, recreation, navigation, flood control, um, agriculture, um, and they're looking at adding other, other aspects to it, but it's so that you don't get, you don't get a solution to a problem that creates problems elsewhere. That when you get a solution to a problem, there's enough consideration given to all the different aspects and their relative values at this particular time that you solve more than one problem or you solve one problem, but you contribute something to solving other problems. Right. So and it's got a very diverse group of people uh, who are very, uh, very smart and uh, very intelligent, very uh, collaborative. Mm -hmm. They really believe in working with one another. And um, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's a good thing. It's, it, but it's a, it's a big, so hard to get your arms around because you're like the Mississippi River Cities and Town Initiative is just about the main stem. But you know, we're about the Ohio and the Tennessee and the Missouri. Right. And not only that, the tributaries to those things. I mean, we're technically the watershed. I mean, you're getting down to the, you know, the little itty bitty stuff. And the problem is, if you solve the issues of the main stem, you haven't solved the problems in the tributaries. They're just going to come back. You've got to go back and, and get it all done. And you talk about nutrient load or sediment load or something like that. Well, where does it start? Right. It starts with little bitty streams and creeks and <clears throat> goes on down from there. So it's a it's an approach to try to get everybody to come together to work for the betterment uh, of the people uh, of the watershed itself. I mean, there's nothing like it on the planet. Yeah. And um, there are a lot. I heard a statistic that 50 of the 65 poorest counties in the United States from the Mississippi River. Hmm. I don't know if it's true or not. Right. Uh, but, it, but I mean, if you start thinking about Parts of Northeast Louisiana and uh, you know, Northwest and West Mississippi and Arkansas and the Boot Hill area. And I mean, yeah, there's, I don't know if there's 50, but there's some tough places. Sure. Tough, tough places. And people live there and, you know, they need clean water. They need access to good, clean water is the basis of mm -hmm. health. Sure. You don't have clean water. You're not going to have health. If you're not going to have good health, what are, how do you expect somebody to get educated? How do you expect them to have the time and the, and the energy to have the effort right. to improve their, themselves? I mean, it's about, about as basic as you can get. 
Right. So, but I also, I'm still active with St. Joseph Abbey and mm -hmm. St. Joseph Seminary College and, uh, you know, just a uh, little bit of this, that, and the other. And sure. uh, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but Seaman's Church Institute uh, decided to name me the River Legend this year. The River so, Legend, okay. The 8th of December at Paducah, the uh, River Bell. The River Bell is going to be awarded to Jim Guidry. Um, and, and I'm going to get the River Legend Award. And it's, uh, you know, Jim Guidry. And that's a legend. There you go. I mean, he's been all over the place for a long, long time. Great operations guy. He ran Rediff uh, for a while. He's done everything with Gulf Intercoastal Canal. He's just, he's, he's done a lot. And uh, he's Senior Vice President of Operations at Kirby. And uh, what a guy. So um, I don't know how I got thrown into that mix, but, you know, every now and then a blind hog finds an acre. And they say, so. well, congratulations to that blind hog, sir. Well, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. I do appreciate everything you have done, and I appreciate your time today. All right. Well, thank you, Tim. We'll Take keep in care. touch. Thanks a lot. You too. Sure.